Welcome to Spot Diagnosis, a podcast about all things dermatological, brought to you by the Skin Health Institute. Today, we have a special Ask Me Anything episode where we answer questions from our listeners. Thanks to everyone who submitted their questions, and we'll be asking our panel of experts to discuss them. My name is Blake Mumford. I'm a Dermatology Research Fellow at the Institute. And I am Dr. Annalise Willems. I'm a GP, Medical Educator, and Research Fellow at the Skin Health Institute. We have an exciting panel in the studio today. First up, we have Associate Professor Alvin Chong, a specialist dermatologist at the Skin Health Institute and St Vincent's Hospital, Melbourne. I'm happy to be here. Next, we have a returning spot diagnosis guest, Dr Belinda Welsh. Belinda is a dermatologist and director of Complete Skin Specialists, as well as consultant at the Skin Health Institute and the Royal Children's Hospital. Hello, and thank you for the invitation to return. Next, we have Dr. Naveen Sunny Singh, a general practitioner for 23 years and an examiner for the FRA CGP exam and also a supervisor of GP training. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. And finally, Dr. Karen Freilich, who requires no introduction for those who are familiar with medical podcasts. Karen is a co-host on Humorous Hacks, a podcast for medical students on a range of topics. She is a GP trainee and has a particular interest in sexual health. Very exciting to be here today and learning something about skin myself. Welcome everyone and thank you for joining us. Okay, so we're going to be starting with a topic that many people asked about, cosmetics, aesthetics and beauty. Now we had a lot of questions on this topic and I confess I don't know a lot about this at all and I suspect I am probably not alone. So let's just start by asking an open question to the panel. Do you guys think that there's an increased interest in having a, the perfect skin? And why do you think this might be? And is this a realistic goal that's attainable for everyone? Well, I might start with that one, Blake, and we've launched into uh, challenging territory right at the start. I don't think we have increased interest in perfect skin any more than any other time in history. People right since Cleopatra have longed to have beautiful skin and a clear complexion, and she used to have milk baths, which has lactic acid, and that sort of is an exfoliator to make your skin nice and soft. But we've just got fabulous tools for self-assessment now, and they are electricity and mirrors and magnification and phones with built-in cameras. And we've got the ability to sort of analyse ourselves to the sort of the nth degree. But not only that, we have to look at others who are not always realistic and images of other people that um, have been doctored and manipulated to give them perfect skin. So what we expect is achievable is very unrealistic. And, you know, the beauty industry has cosmetics for a good reason. (laughs) And that is most of us do not have flawless skin and we need to use makeup and other things to make it look better. The reason we want to look perfect is because it makes us look youthful and confident. You know, we we look at each, each other and we think we are better if we've got clear skin. Is it attainable if you're genetically blessed? then sometimes you will find it more easily attainable. And then it's more attainable with some of the tools we have, lasers and skincare. But uh, I try and make people somewhat realistic about what we're able to do. Right. So maybe the desire has been there for a very, very long time and as old as time, 
but now we've perhaps got more of an ability to compare ourselves to to other people. Alvin, what's your take on this? Well, I think the people that we hold up as paragons of perfection are not normal, okay? So, you know, Kate Blanchett has a perfect facial features. She's completely symmetrical. And then on top of it, if you also add in, you know, the the makeup, the post-production work, if you blow up my face to the size of a billboard, you know, the size of my pores will be you'll like be, manhole covers. You'll be, you'll be beautiful, Alvin, I'll, I'm I'll sure. Be, yeah. uh, yes, that's right. I'll be beautiful, but in a really realistic way. Mm. But if you have a look at these celebrities, you know, they've had photoshops and everything. So you blow up Kate Blanchett's skin to the size of a billboard and she looks absolutely unbelievable. And it's not because she's not beautiful. She is. But the amount of post-production, the makeup, you know, the lighting, these people's faces are worth millions and millions of dollars, you know, and they put in the work so that they do look like a million dollars. It's not really realistic for normal humans to try to look like that. And I wonder if they spend millions of dollars on making themselves look that way too. I'm pretty sure they do. So what do you think the role of uh, social media is and, and the influence that it's having on, on in particular young women? Do you think that's driving the increase in, um, in perhaps desire for this perfect skin? I think an interesting phenomenon that's come up recently is the emergence of no makeup makeup and having 10-step beauty regimes to have the perfect skin, wanting it to be all natural and to have the best skin, but it's just another unattainable beauty standard out there, which is incredibly difficult to achieve. It's very expensive and takes a lot of time. So I think it's really important to actually kind of apply a critical lens to all of these things as well. Karen, what what is no makeup makeup? (laughs) Well, you see it with brands which wants to show the face as being natural and glowing and you don't need makeup because you've got perfect skin. But in reality, it costs a lot of money, a lot of time and a lot of effort to get skin like that. It's extremely difficult. And I think if you think about that in terms of just another beauty standard, it is really hard to attain and does put a lot of pressure on people. It does equate clear skin with health when we know that's not true. Look, unfortunately, it ends up leaving people lacking confidence, feeling of lesser value than these people who do have perfect skin, and it sort of doesn't leave people feeling good. So my day usually sinks when I've got a patient who says, look, I just don't want to wear makeup. (laughs) And I just know that that's going to be hard. And I try and say to them, I wear makeup every day. I think my skin's pretty good. I'd just like to say that I have a uh, more literal no makeup makeup routine. (laughs) I do not apply any makeup. It may surprise some of you. But moving on to our first question uh, from one of our listeners was, uh, what is the perfect skincare routine? And uh, I guess my question is, uh, should I have one at all? Well, I'm not going to discount skincare at all because it is important and it does make a difference, actually. So the first step is actually good health. And I'll say diet, exercise, don't smoke and don't drink too much because It's impossible to have fabulous skin if you're not well. The second thing is sunscreen. Pretty strict on that one. That has to be on every morning, face, neck, backs of hands, anywhere you don't want to photo age, essentially. And that over a lifetime makes a huge difference. Photo aging is the one thing, so sun damage, is the single most common thing that will cause blemishes, skin irregularity, and take away from that perfect look. 
Then beyond that, there are a number of skincare products now that are have been shown unequivocally with a lot of good science to benefit you. The first would be topical vitamin A or topical retinoids, and they can be in the form of retinol, which is the simple form, and then prescription tretinoin. And then beyond that, sort of vitamin C, the alpha-hydroxy acids, niacinamide. So without going into a long list of them, there are a number of cosmeceuticals, cosmetic pharmaceuticals. They are bioactive and they have physiological effects in skin to improve it. So I would keep it pretty simple. So if I could summarize, Blake, I would say sunscreen in the morning and then in the evening I would use a cleanser and then I would choose from a range of bioactive products. So that would be niacinamide, an alpha hydroxy acid and a topical vitamin A, if I was keeping it very simple. It's actually very interesting when I was researching all of these things for this podcast, because as I've already made it abundantly clear, I have no idea what any of these things are. I started getting advertising on on YouTube for, for all these products that contained, you know, topical vitamin A and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's quite interesting. Yeah, they're out there. They know how to get you. On the note of cleansers, there's so many types out there, oil-based, cream-based, double cleansing, single cleansing, three times a day, once a day. What should we actually be doing? Well, not over-cleansing. I think that is probably one of the bigger problems that we see with people with uh, predisposition to eczema or sensitive skin over-cleanse and then cause a problem. Look, I usually get people just to cleanse once at night time and then use their preferred skincare product after that. I usually suggest a cream-based cleanser, and that's probably because a lot of the people that see me have got sensitive skin. So oilier skin types might like a cleanser with some alpha-hydroxy acids, which will remove sebum, or some salicylic acid, which will remove, uh, get into those oil glands and help clear them out and make their skin feel clearer. So once a day is fine, And you can choose a cleanser that is sort of more specific to your skin type and problem. But I don't think you really need to double cleanse and you don't need to sort of do it more often than that. I'm excited, Blake. I feel like I have my new skincare regime. How about you? Yeah, I'm not convinced. This is a question from me, actually. Uh, One of the questions was asking about what, what is the best serum, but my question was even more basic than that. What is a serum? I did a I did a bit of a Google search on this, but I couldn't find like a scientific article that, you know, something on PubMed that would explain it to me. Belinda, maybe you could help me out. Yes. Well, a serum is actually a formulation. So it's a thin viscosity gel or emulsion. Uh, so that's sort of usually a water-based emulsion. It's like a milky moisturizer and it's usually dispensed through an eyedropper. So the reason they were formulated was more so that the eyedropper provided a way of carefully titrating how much you can use. So you can't overuse them too much and you only apply them with a thin layer. But you can put all sorts of actives in serum and by that I mean the niacinamide or alpha-hydroxy acids, vitamin C, but they've got to be dispensed in small amounts. Same question, but toners. What are toners and are they back in? Well, toners was an interesting concept. So Clinique in the 1960s developed the three-step skincare routine, which was cleanse, tone and moisturise. 
And here's the power of marketing and advertising because that just took hold. And even today, people still believe that that's an essential part of your skincare, which is not. There's absolutely no reason to have a toner. But it's just another way of delivering skin actives. When they were first developed, they were actually used because people used soaps with sodium chloride and potassium hydroxide, and they left a sort of a scummy sort of feeling on your face. You couldn't really wash them off with water. So toners were developed with astringents, sort of alcohol, so that that would clean off that residue more effectively. And so people got this sort of smooth feeling on their skin. And you can add in things like sensates, which are menthol or camphor, and it gives you that tingly feeling afterwards. So you've got that, you know, super clean feeling. But once soaps changed and they didn't leave that residue, toners weren't really needed. But then they sort of got rebranded and reimagined so that they became again part of the skincare regime. But they look, they can be useful because you can put salicylic acid in them, you might put alcohol in them, or you might put other actives in them, but they're not essential by any means. So is this just a classic example of companies inventing a problem in order to convince people to buy their products? Should people be applying multiple skincare products to their face at all, uh, given that my skincare routine is basically waking up in the morning and having a shower and then going to work? All right, Blake, well, we really need to work on you. Um, <laughs> so, but the answer is actually no, they're not, they're not sort of lulling us into multiple products. The, the issue is that some actives don't coexist in a formulation. For example, um, ascorbic acid is acidic, that's vitamin C, and niacinamide or vitamin B3 is alkaline. So if you add those together, they're going to neutralise one another. So they need to be in different products. You know, the alpha hydroxy acids are acidic and the retinoids are basic. So there's another combination that you can't put together. So at the end of the day, you do actually need several different products to be able to get the benefit of each of those actives. And sunscreens are a bit the same. So zinc oxide is very safe and effective, but you can't put certain other actives with zinc oxide in the same formulation. Right. So maybe I'm thinking about this the wrong way. Maybe I should be thinking about skincare as like a heart failure patient. You know, you need your ACE inhibitor. You also need, you know, your beta blocker and all of these things can like prolong the life of your skin. Yes. Now you're getting it. Now, Sunny, over to you. One of my GP colleagues in the room. A question that has come up quite frequently was skin cancer surveillance or skin checks in kids. In particular, what are the current recommendations and who should do this? Sonny, what advice do you give? The first thing I do is explore the reasons why they want their child's skin checked. Is there a family history or a personal history of skin cancer? So I want to address what their concerns are. I also then explain what the signs look for, and I try to keep it as simple as I can. If it's changing, someone needs to have a look at it. So if it's changing in size, shape, colour, itchy or bleeding, come and show me. We'll have a look at it and we'll make a decision. Having said that, as kids grow, their skin lesions also grow. So everything that grows does not necessarily mean it's particularly nasty. So once again, come and see someone, come and see me, we'll have a look at it for you and we'll make an assessment about what needs to be done. If a GP is confident in using a dermatoscope, I'm quite comfortable using one, so I'm quite happy to look at skin, uh, children's skin. However, if the GP is not happy to use a dermatoscope, I think a referral to a dermatologist to get a second opinion I think is quite valid. And also, it's a really good opportunity to address prevention of skin cancer, so sunscreen, hats, 
long sleeves, etc. I guess I can add to that. Childhood melanomas are very rare. The risk is about one in a million for those aged between one to four years old, as opposed to, you know, an adult where the risk in Australia is sitting like, you know, one in 40. So it's actually quite rare. But the thing is, childhood melanomas can be a little bit atypical. About 60% of them have the what you call the childhood ABCD rules, which is amelanotic, a bleeding, bump, and they can be actually uniform in color and any diameter. So it's quite different from the traditional ABCDE. The main thing is if there's anything that concerns, particular lesion that concerns a parent, it should be assessed by the GP. And if there's any concerns, then a referral can be made to a dermatologist for further assessment. And I'll paraphrase Sunny and kind of echo what he said, which is sun protection is really the key. If we're thinking about an older population, so individuals who might be balding, we had an individual who asked a question about tips for managing thick hyperkeratotic scalp lesions where SCC has been ruled out for the balding patient. Okay, so we see this a lot because when men lose their hair, the amount of, of uh, sun damage that then accumulates on the scalp then grows exponentially. And often these patients would come in and they've got you know, a head full of actinic keratosis, some of which are a bit thicker than others. It's itchy, it's irritated. How do we actually deal with them? My advice is, firstly, sun protection, because, you know, if you protect the scalp, then give the skin a little bit of chance to, re to reverse some of the damage. Then how do you get rid of the actinic keratosis? There are several ways of doing it. Cryotherapy works to a degree, but if you have a lot of them, then my preferred um, treatment would be something like salicylic acid, 10%, used daily to flatten it. And then in winter, 5-fluorouracil cream, used daily for about four weeks as few treatments. This will lead to a lot of inflammation, but will hopefully clear these keratoses. You know, they will recur again, but hopefully with prevention, they'll just recur a lot more slowly. And they need regular follow-up because they get lots of skin cancers. Yes, I agree, Alvin. These very hard to treat, actually. And uh, I, over the years now, tend to be actually a lot more aggressive in managing them because they're very high risk of transformation into squamous cell carcinoma. And once they do transform, they're a high risk of metastasis. And I've had several people, even in the last 12 months, who had metastatic SCC to their parotids. And they'd had multiple squamous cell carcinomas over their head and neck, and we didn't know which one had metastasized. I know I'm not boarding, but I'm definitely going to start wearing a hat a lot more than I used to. Uh, I've recently become a father, actually, to a beautiful baby girl. And uh, this next question was one I recently asked myself. What is the best management for kids who have cradle cap? And the person who asked this on Facebook was also going to give bonus points if there's an easy treatment that preferably wasn't once a day, a bit more low maintenance. Well, first of all, Blake, congratulations on fatherhood. Thank you. I've had the pleasure of my majority of my career working with Mediterranean patients, and um, they've been using olive oil on their babies for generations. So apply some olive oil liberally to the baby's scalp half an hour or so before bath, and then the scale should lift off quite easily at bath time with a face washer or a gentle sponge. For the bonus points, an old GP colleague of mine used to use 1% sulfur plus 1% salicylic acid in sorbylene cream, which can be applied two or three times a week, which unfortunately can only be um, found at a compounding pharmacist, but if you can find one, 
it's very easy to use. So this is probably something I think Sonny's seen a lot more than I do because they tend not to be referred to us. But uh, we know that one of the theories that Cradle Cap develops is that the baby's being sort of their immune system's getting used to having yeast on the skin. It's sort of a bit of an immunological reaction. So I think um, I think that old uh, olive oil is perfect. And sometimes because of this yeast theory, you want to reduce the numbers. So you can put a little bit of an anti-yeast shampoo in the bath and just gently, you know, have parents wipe it over or just gently shampoo the scalp with that. And that's available over the counter at the chemist. So that's um, ketoconazole. I certainly see a lot of nappy rash. Sunny, do you have any tips for managing this? So nappy rash is basically an irritant contact dermatitis. So the, pro- the first thing is to reduce the con- skin contact with urine and feces. So regular nappy changes is the baseline of treatment. So changing very- nappies very often, using barrier creams, and I recommend zinc-based creams and applied liberally and thickly. Don't, be, uh, don't skimp on the zinc cream. Apply thickly. If it's possible, nappy-free time's a good thing, once again, to keep the skin free of feces and urine. If it's really, really bad, using a 1% hydrocortisone cream can certainly help the irritation and the inflammation. And if you're worried about candida, with particularly looking at satellite lesions, then you can add clotrimazole to the mix. Moving on to a similar issue, but in a different demographic, incontinence-associated dermatitis. One of the questions sent in noted that if we can change the incontinence aid more often, that that would be helpful with this condition. But on the off chance that this can't or won't be done, what are some good options for treating this? Once again, liberal application of zinc. This is really difficult. I think as it's very similar to nappy rash, effectively. And you just want to make sure sometimes if it's not responding that you're not missing another dermatosis. And tinea is always my favourite. I always check the feet if there's a groin rash, just in case, because... You know, tinea on the feet is incredibly common or those sort of thick yellow nails means that there's tinea in there. Is that the classic, you know, pulling up the jeans over the nails and then up into the groin? Correct. Spreading that tinea all over your it body? It wants that next mm. nice, warm, moist place to go. And so usually right it's the groin. <laughs> it's the groin. So um, always check the feet. Curbnerization of psoriasis is another one that I've seen. So, you know, elderly people who may not have psoriasis in typical locations and so they might, it might be psoriasis. But, you know, sometimes not necessarily, I don't have any super clever tricks for this problem, but sometimes, you know, in other problems, people with AIDS, um, you can get around uh, them with interesting approaches. So, for example, I've got a young woman who has uh, Crohn's disease and she had surgery and she's got a um, stoma. And one of her big problems is that she sweats a lot around the stoma, so it keeps it keeps you know moving and won't stick well. So we Botox around her stoma or the whole area, and that reduces her sweating, and therefore you know she can she can wear it without any problems. Mm. One question we get quite a lot of is how on earth do you treat dandruff? This is a good question, Karen. So dandruff, you know, is actually. A spectrum of diseases, okay? So you have very, very mild dandruff, which is just a little bit of scalpage and a bit of scaling. Then it blends into seborrheic dermatitis, which is more severe. And then at the extreme is actually probably psoriasis of the scalp, okay? So if we're talking about run-of-the-mill, you know, dandruff, 
then, and it's fairly mild, then a simple over-the-counter anti-dandruff shampoo. And there are a few of them. They usually contain an active ingredient like tar or zinc pyrethrone or selenium sulfide. All of them are very effective if used appropriately. So I had a patient with dandruff the other day, you know, seborrheic dermatitis, and she came in and her scalp was oily and a bit scaly and a bit red, and she has a problem with that. So I said, how often do you wash your hair? And she goes, once a week. I said, hey, if you wash your hair more frequently, does it itch less? She goes, yes. I said, then you probably need to wash your hair every other day with anti-dandruff shampoo. You know, you got to do it regularly. The only problem is that it's chronic. Now, if it's moderately severe or, you know, there's a lot of inflammation, a lot of scalp itch, then I would use a short burst of a topical corticosteroid lotion, such as mometasone furate, once a day for a few days, and just use it as required. If nothing helps, or if it's very severe, then we have to think about psoriasis. And that's probably when I think a referral to a dermatologist would be reasonable. Yeah, just one tip um, when using the shampoos. It's a medicated shampoo, so you need to leave it on the scalp long enough for it to act. So what I, one tip I use is um, apply the shampoo first before you enter the shower, then wash the rest of your body five minutes goes by, and then rinse off the shampoo after that. And so the shampoo's had a good five minutes plus to act on the scalp, which will usually get good results. Yep. Taking a step back, one of the theories is that you are sensitised or sensitive to the pitorosporum yeast that live on our skin. So we can't actually ever get rid of those. We just try and reduce their numbers by using these um, medicated products. The yeast love oil. That's why they live in our scalp. That's why you get seborrheic dermatitis on the scalp and on the face. So the only other way around it that I've occasionally found helpful in really difficult cases is reducing the oil. So take away their food and you have less of them. So... For women, sometimes spironolactone has worked, but not always, as an antiandrogen. And I find isotretinoin can be quite helpful, but it helps if they've got acne too, obviously. But you sometimes notice that their dandruff will improve because you've reduced the oiliness of their skin and the yeast just, it's, it's, an, it's a hostile environment for them. It's such a good point because I think so many people associate dandruff with dry skin, but it's actually the opposite. It's too much oil with the yeast feeding off it. Yeah. I'm learning a lot. Uh, we had quite a few questions on facial eczema and how do you treat it? So specifically, do you use a topical calcineurin inhibitor like Elidel or do you use topical corticosteroids or oral antibiotics? And a similar question was, which corticosteroid should you use for severe facial eczema? So it's a really good question. The first thing is, are you sure it's eczema? All right. So I think it's important that you make the diagnosis. If you treat rosacea with a topical steroid, it's going to get a lot worse. Um, if you treat periorificial dermatitis or seborrheic dermatitis with a potent topical steroid, you just flare it up. Now, assuming that it is eczema that you're dealing with, Short-term treatments with a mild corticosteroid, like 1% hydrocortisone cream or ointment for a few days, in combination with a bland emollient is probably enough and it will settle things down. If the rash keeps recurring or if it's very severe, then you can think about a few days, probably no more than five days in a row of a moderately potent topical corticosteroid, like methylprednisolone acepinate, cream or ointment, but in my experience, no more than five days. If you have to keep using it, then 
you know, the patient will need an assessment. Is this allergic contact dermatitis? Is this something else? So refer on. Okay, so this next question, I made sure that it got into this podcast because this is something I've been wanting to ask from a personal point of view. So I have a bit of an overshare here, but I've had a rash on my eyelid for months now. And being a naughty doctor, I've just been treating it with uh, hydrocortisone and clotrimazole cream, which I can get over the counter. And it goes away beautifully. It just melts away, but then it just comes back. Now, obviously, I just can't ask my bosses about this because this is really embarrassing. You know, they're dermatologists. I'm a dermatology research fellow. I just can't, you know, come out and ask them about this. But if I slip it into a podcast, then that's totally okay. So uh, anyway, what causes eyelid dermatitis or rash? And is it safe to apply steroids given that the eyelid skin is so thin? Am I going to wear away my eyelid? First of all, Blake, please ask. We're open. We're nice people. So we want you to ask. If it's isolated and not associated with a more generalised rash or hints of a rash elsewhere, eczema, psoriasis, it can take a bit of working out. The most common cause tends to be contact dermatitis, and that is probably more often allergic than irritant. So the difference is if you have an irritant contact dermatitis, it's just the products or pollens or whatever getting on your skin are just causing it to be um, inflamed. But you're not truly allergic to it. It's just wear and tear. Whereas allergy is when you've got an immunological immune system uh, sensitization where your immune system is allergic and if you put that product anywhere on your skin, it would react. So eyelid skin's very thin. It's very delicate. And because we're opening and closing all the time, we've got lots of creases and products get stuck in the creases and can penetrate a little bit more than it would on normal skin. So, and we often put things on our face. Now I'm excluding you from from this conversation, but you know, for women, it's lots of makeup and eye products and hair products and transferring of allergens from our hands is very common. So nail polish and any other thing, if we've touched metal or we've touched um, foods that we then protein contact dermatitis where we touch our eyelids. So I think thinking about that is number one. And then of course, it might be just straight eczema. It might be seborrheic dermatitis. It may be psoriasis, localized psoriasis on the eyelids is possible, more common in children. And then we start getting into sort of rare and wonderful things like dermatomyositis, uh, uh, which we have to think about. So it can be quite difficult. I think what you're doing is is okay. But if you came to see myself or Alvin, we might sort of think about getting you patch tested, which is a form of allergy testing, if we needed to sort out what this was, if it was grumbling on. We'd probably also switch you over to a non-steroid-based cream, which would either be pimecrolimus, uh, which is Elidel, or tacrolimus, which uh, we can get compounded because it's not on the PBS. So yes, it takes a bit of sorting out, but I think contact dermatitis is very high on the list. Belinda, we have another one for you, and it's my understanding this is one of your favourite topics. This question was asked multiple times with a lot of upvotes. How do you manage periorificial dermatitis? Karen, I do love this. And my, I love it because when I diagnose it, you can treat it. And often, unfortunately, it's actually sometimes really difficult to diagnose when it turns up early. 
And so I feel I'm lucky because by the time people come to me, it's pretty florid usually. And that's because they've had it for a while and they've used a multiple topical products on it and it's just got all out of control. And then I can come in and say, you've got perioral dermatitis. We're going to treat it with oral doxycycline, 100 milligrams a day for at least four weeks, sometimes six if it's not completely clear by the end of four weeks. And it pretty reliably always goes away. Topical products will not clear it. And Often people have used, skin is accessible, let's face it. So that means that you put everything you can find on it and you take the advice of everybody that you come across, including your grandmother, who's got whatever cream she's got in her cupboard. That topical 5-0-uracil in the uh, (laughs) kitchen sink, you know. Everything. And, And most importantly, topical steroids. This is the one thing that unfortunately initially makes it better, but what makes it worse over time. So it settles down and then you stop using the steroid and it flares up and the only thing that brings it back under control is more steroid. So people get in a terrible um, cycle. It's very hard to diagnose when it's early. So perioroficial means around, it's not perioral, it's perioroficial around your mouth, nose and eyes. So it's tiny little red papules and scale in any of those locations. The hardest place to find it is just under the eyelid, that lateral part of the eyelid, and if it's there, never put steroid on. And this is why I think we're very careful about putting steroid on people's faces because they get addicted to it. Because it works, it vasoconstricts, you look fantastic, and then you stop it and it all rebounds and flares up again. So it is easy to treat Once you've diagnosed it, it's actually easy to treat. It's not commonly recurrent and um, most of the time people will treat it uh, and it will stay away. Now, the trick is with this though, don't stop the antibiotics early. So you really need to hang in there for the entire four weeks of treatment until it's every single tiny remnant of it is gone. Can I add something to it? I think... During the pandemic, when we're all wearing face masks, we're, we're seeing a lot more perioroficial dermatitis. So I think wearing a face mask does something to the microflora around our face. I personally had it myself. It took a few weeks of an antibiotic to clear. But I think we're going to see, well, as long as we're wearing masks, we're going to see more of it. The next question is very personal to me. So I'm just going to sneak it in there. But it's quite a common question as well, which is about acne, but specifically in your 30s and your 40s. So after years of great skin, you hit 30, you can get some acne again. For me, Roaccutane has been the best decision I've ever made, but I want to know, is that the best decision for everyone? What else is there and why does this happen? It's a fantastic medication. <laughs> it's, and I'm glad you brought that up because, well, let, let's start with the actual acne in your 30s. We don't know. It's remarkable that it is incredibly common. We call it post-mature acne. And we really don't have a good handle on why you can have had perhaps acne as a teenager, be clear for years, and then acne in your 30s. There's been a few reports in the literature or studies that have looked at trigger factors, and some of them have shown that you're more likely to get it if you've had acne as a teenager. You're more likely to get it if you've not had any pregnancies and more likely if you've got a high-stress job. 
So it's interesting. (laughs) Well, it is interesting, isn't it? Because stress is something that we can't quantify. We all have it, you know, to varying degrees, and yet it does affect people's skin. I think Alvin would agree we see people, all sorts of things flare up when you're stressed. But is it the only cause? No. Hormones perhaps have something to do with it, but exactly what we don't know. But I often see it actually in women who've had a couple of kids and then all of a sudden they'll get acne. So in the absence of giving you a clear, direct answer on the why, we can fix it. And, you know, often we'll try topicals and then we'll try doxycycline or oral tetracyclines. But I do think that isotretinoin tends to be the most effective way of clearing it and often switching it off. If there's a hint that it's sort of premenstrual, then you might go down the path of doing an androgen screen. The oral contraceptive pill works for some women and adding in a bit of spironolactone as an antiandrogen is actually very effective. And often you can get away with relatively low doses, maybe 50 milligrams a day. But it doesn't tend to reliably switch it off as well as um, isotretinoin. And the other nice thing about it is you can use low doses. So people don't tend to have to worry too much about the terrible dry lips and photosensitivity, those sort of things, because low doses will work. You just have to be careful not to get pregnant while you're on it. That's our biggest challenge. This may come as a surprise to some of our listeners, but dermatology and emergency can be used in the same sentence. Many people were interested in knowing about potentially dangerous or emergency rashes and a few simple tips to identify nasty ones versus reassuring ones. Okay, so Annalise, you're asking about dermatological red flags. And there are a few rules of thumb. Firstly, you know, the general rule is the patient unwell. So if you have an unwell patient with a widespread eruption, then generally there's something wrong. Okay. And the kind of disease that we fear the most are very, very severe adverse cutaneous reactions. You'd, you would have heard of Stevens-Johnson syndrome and toxic epidermal necrolysis. These are diseases where there's an immune reaction and the skin literally falls off the skin. Okay, In toxic epidermal necrolysis, patients often present like burn victims with mucosal involvement and their skin sloughs off and they get sick as dogs and they actually need to be admitted to burns units or intensive care. So what are some of the clues? So is the patient red all over? Are bits of their skin sloughing off? Okay, because if bits of the skin are sloughing off, then you got to think about, is this toxic epidermal necrolysis? Is there blistering of the skin? Is there involvement of the mucous membranes? So in the mouth, genitals, or eyes. If the answer to these is yes, then you have what's called a dermatological emergency and you need to involve the dermatologist urgently in their care. And often these patients will need to be admitted to hospital for, for specialized treatment. So it sounds like with these patients, we shouldn't write a letter to you and say for urgent assessment? You should call me. <laughs> uh, but, you know, there is actually, um, we have an episode uh, on, on severe cutaneous drug reactions, season three, episode three. So hopefully, you know, if you're interested, you can listen to that too. So these are ones that we would call up the hospital yes. and... Send them in. Okay. Into emergency. I feel for the poor emergency department intern who's thinking, oh gosh, is this actually the Stephen Johnson's I read about in the textbook? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's actually commoner than you think. And I think 
the the incidence is about one in a million per year. So you know there'll be about five or six cases uh, coming out in Melbourne every year. One question that I come across a lot in general practice is hirsutism. So especially young women who come with hairs on their chin, their hair is thinning out a little bit, but they're really quite distressed from it and it affects different people in different ways. But what can we do about it, if anything? Well, absolutely. Hirsutism causes a great deal of psychological distress. So there's a fairly important roadmap that I always think about when I see a patient with hirsutism because the most common things you'll probably see is polycystic ovary syndrome or idiopathic but then there's some really important things that you have to make you know not miss so effectively I sort of think along the pathway of is this driven by androgens or not is it hyperandrogenic if it is where are the androgens coming from Are they coming from the ovaries? And that'll most likely be polycystic ovary syndrome. Are they coming from the adrenals? And that will probably be that sort of non-classic congenital adrenal hyperplasia. Or are they a tumour? And that's rare, but important not to miss. If it's a tumour, it will happen quickly. And there'll also probably be virilisation, which is different, where there's sort of signs of androgen excess with voice change, increasing of that Adam's apple uh, clitoromegaly in a woman. Then there's the group that's non-driven by androgens, so non-hyperandrogenic. And some of that crosses over to hypertrichosis, which is just increased hair generally, not necessarily in that male pattern distribution. So medications are high on the list there. So I think if, if androgens are involved in polycystic ovary syndrome, then, you know, Sonny would probably be a good person to answer this because, you know, as a GP, he probably treats more than I do. But I would have thought, Sonny, perhaps a oral contraceptive plus or minus spironolactone as an antiandrogen. And then sometimes, depending on their other problems, metformin, I think, sometimes is used. Oh, absolutely. And the oral contraceptive containing cyprata and acetate, which is the antiandrogen, is probably the one you choose first. Now, probably as a GP, one of the most common dermatological things we see is eczema. And eczema is a huge topic, but I'd love a rundown of just the basics of what to do when someone comes in with eczema. Okay, well, thanks, Karen. That's a good question. And I think eczema is one of the most common skin diseases out there. It affects about a third of children, particularly um, infants under the age of one, and a significant proportion of adults, about 10% of adults. So it's common, okay? So it depends on the severity, but here are some general principles. Firstly, you want to avoid triggers. And the triggers are anything that dries the skin or heats the skin. So that includes soaps and detergents, heat, hot showers, woolly clothes that prickle. Then the second thing is regular emollients. You want to try to replenish the moisture in the skin and we use emollients, light emollients, may not do the job. You might need some slightly thicker emollients, particularly in the evenings for for badly affected areas. And then a really, really important part of it is to use something to reduce the inflammation. And here we're talking about topical corticosteroids. I tend to use potent topical corticosteroids in an ointment form, such as mometazone furorate for the body. And if it's for the face, I tend to use like a calcium inhibitor like pamecrolimus or 1% hydrocortisone ointment. 
Eczema skin is often secondarily infected, particularly with Staph aureus. And when that happens, you get a super antigen activation of eczema. So we have to treat Staph. Uh, very often the skin is broken and there's a golden crust. And I tend to use, you tend to use an oral antibiotic such as Keflexin. If it's very, very acute, consider wet dressing. Now, these are all first line, you know, so emollients, avoiding triggers, topical steroids, and antibiotics. What if it doesn't work? If it doesn't work, then I suggest, you know, referring off to a dermatologist where we can use second line treatments such as narrowband UVB. And more and more, we can use immunosuppression. And there's been a fantastic medication that's been approved on PBS called Dupulumab. It's an anti-interleukin-4 injectable drug. The patient injects themselves every fortnight and is very, very useful for severe cases of eczema. And I'd like to refer all of you to our episodes on eczema in season one, episodes seven and eight, where we go through all this in more detail. Throwing to my GP colleagues over here, what about some tips for managing eczema in GP land? I think Alvin sums it up pretty well. We do all those things in general practice land as well. So um, all the things that Alvin mentioned, I, I would instigate in the treatment of my patients. Alvin did mention wet dressings. There's a fantastic patient information sheet on the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne website. So I usually use wet dressings in children with severe eczema. So I refer parents to look at that website. And it's a, it's a really easy to use, patient-friendly handout to look at. So I, I use that often. And just a little bit of a tip um, for little kids who are really scratching a lot with their eczema, put mittens on. Another very useful resource from the Royal Children's Hospital is their handout on bleach baths. And I've learnt uh, the hard way to always give the handout to parents because the first look on their face when I suggest putting bleach in the bath with their precious baby, I've learnt that having the handout ready to go on letterhead is very helpful there. I really liked your comment before, Alvin, when you mentioned using potent topical corticosteroids. And I think this brings us back to a really important issue, and that is corticosteroid phobia. Is that something you've come across, Sunny? Yes, it is. And some of that is from the community, but some of that, unfortunately, is also driven by ph pharmacists as well. No matter what instructions you give to a patient, even if it's written down, often a pharmacist will say, oh, don't use that too much, don't use it too often, it might get skin thinning or skin discoloration. And then all the hard work you've put in to try and get the patient to follow your instructions all gets wasted. Sometimes I even preempt the patient that do this, you may get pushback from the pharmacist, ignore it, do, do as I recommend, and you will be on a winning track. And I'll review them early to make sure that the things are following the, the outcome which I expect. All right. I think that brings us to the end of the Ask Me Anything episode of Spot Diagnosis. We hope we answered your questions and you enjoyed the episode. Remember, these podcasts are not meant to replace medical advice. If you have a skin condition, like me, that requires attention, we strongly encourage you to see your medical practitioner. Thank you to all our experts for your time and sharing your expertise with us. We'd like to thank our producer and supervisor, Associate Professor Alvin Chong at the Skin Health Institute. We'd also like to thank the education team at the Institute. For listeners who want more information and resources, a transcript of this episode and links to other resources can be found on our website, spotdiagnosis.org.au. Please share Spot Diagnosis with your friends and colleagues. Rate and review us. Let us know what you think. We would really appreciate your feedback and any suggestions. And five-star ratings. Thank you.